Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. God, hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith for this blessed day. Every day is a blessed day when you can gather together around the Word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before your throne this day, boldly to your throne of grace and of mercy that we may obtain your mercy and find your grace that helps in our time of need. Father, we thank you for the word that became flesh. We thank you for Jesus who died for our sins. We thank you for honoring his death by raising him from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, that we who believe on him, in him, through him, by him, can have the forgiveness of all our sins and iniquities and receive the gift of everlasting life. We thank you, Father God, for that. Now, as we open your word, lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit, that in all things you can be lifted up and glorified, that Jesus can be lifted up and glorified through our study that your word goes forth and does not return to you void, that it accomplishes what you please and prospers where you send it. And to you we give honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Glory to God. Join me in our confession of faith. Repeat these words after me. Ponder them in your heart. Let them be the foundation upon which you build each and every Bible study you go into. Every time you open the Bible, let this be the foundation upon what you build. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he's coming soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe in life everlasting. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Get your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is going to be the first session of a couple of weeks. I don't know if it'll be two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It'll be as long as the Lord tells me to go on. But I want to look at the calling of the Lord, which is also representative of our calling to follow the Lord. Where Jesus, after the temptation and all that, came to his hometown, and we covered this in detail. I'm not going to go through it. If, if you missed the study on the authority of Jesus, about the boyhood of Jesus, about how he was raised, they just didn't hand the scroll to any Tom, Dick, or Harry that walked into the church or into the synagogue. These scrolls were precious. And they were only handed to rabbis. So Jesus is recognized as a rabbi when he is handed this scroll. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And then it goes through who he's supposed to preach the gospel to, to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the sick. But we're just going to stop right there. Today's study is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach. That's what we're going to focus on today. Now, to give you some background on, on what the Holy Spirit was guiding me in this teaching, I read somewhere that in the late 1980s or 1990s, a transition, a transformation took place in the church in Western civilization, mainly here in America, something happened at that point in time. We left preaching about Jesus and him crucified to pay the sin price of the world to one of preaching the grace of God, the love of God, and all that is true. However, as we go through this study today, you're going to recognize the transformation I'm talking about. You see, back I read somewhere that back in the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere along the lines of 80 to 90% of those professing and making a decision for Christ were also later found to be falling away from the faith. That's to say, modern evangelism with all of his methods, is creating something like 80 to 90 of what we commonly call backsliders for every 100 decisions made for Christ. Let me make it even more real for you. For example, in 1991, just this one year, 1991, I read that in 1991 alone, a major denomination, I'm not going to mention which one it is, in the U.S. obtained 294,000 plus decisions for Christ in one year. Glory to God. 
This is the major denomination it has 11,500 churches in it, at least it did in the 1990s. And they were able to obtain 294,000 decisions for Christ recorded on their little cards. Unfortunately, now listen to me, a year later, they could only account for 14,000 of them in fellowship. Which means they could not account for 280,000 of their own decisions. People that made a decision in their church or in their meetings, they lost 280,000 of these people. And this represents the normal, modern, evangelical results. And folks, this is something that's concern, that concerns me. Because how can we lose 90% of the people that we spent all the effort and time and resources investing and giving them to make the decision for Jesus, to receive Jesus as their Savior, and we lose 90% of them after they make the decision? I've been saying for the last couple of years, and there have been others that you've probably heard preach the same thing, that the church holds the ultimate responsibility. And the church in America is the major reason that sin is so rampant in this nation right now because the church has failed miserably in its job. I've been berated for it. But that's okay. Probably because... When I preach about subjects like this, I'm upsetting the lucrative apple cart called tithes and offerings for worldly pastors. Amen? You know, in Psalms 19, verse 7, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that the Bible says is perfect and actually converts the soul? We just read. Scripture makes it very clear. The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect for converting the soul. Now, let me illustrate the function of God's law. Visualize this situation with me, just as an example where I can show you what I'm talking about. And we'll look at it through civil law. Let's say, Imagine if I came up to you and I said, hey, I got some good news for you. And you say, what's that? He goes, someone just paid that $25,000 speeding ticket on your behalf. You'd probably react with saying, what are you talking about? I don't have a $25,000 speeding ticket. That's not good news. It just doesn't make sense. Well, my good news wouldn't be good news to you because you didn't realize or even believe that you have a $25,000 speeding ticket. It'd be foolishness. And perhaps you might even get offended because I'm insinuating you've broken a major law when you don't think you have. But if I put it this way, it'll make a lot more sense. If I came up and I said, hey, on your way to work yesterday, there was a speed camera that clocked you going 55 miles an hour 
in a 15 mile an hour school zone. You see, there's an area set aside down here for a blind children's school, and the speed limit is 15 miles per hour, and there were 10 clear warning signs leading up to this school zone. But it, the camera clocked you going 55 miles an hour right through that zone. What you did was extremely dangerous, therefore the penalty is $25,000 in fines for doing that. The, the judge was about to have you arrested till you could pay it, but someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. So you've been blessed. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Can you see that telling you precisely what you have done wrong first actually makes the good news make sense? If I don't bring clear instruction understanding that you have violated the law, then the good news would seem foolishness. It may be even offensive to you. But once you understand that you truly have broken the law, then the good news will become truly good news. Amen? Now, in the same way, if I approach a sinner, an unrepentant sinner, one who is enjoying his sin, and I say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It'd be foolishness and offensive to him. Foolishness because it doesn't make any sense. But the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, I believe. But it's offensive to him also because I'm insinuating he's a sinner and he doesn't think he's a sinner. As far as he's concerned, there's a lot of people in this world far worse than him. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it may make more sense to him. If I was to take the time and open up the law, the Ten Commandments, and show this sinner precisely what he is doing wrong, that he's offended God by ignoring his law, violating his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law that he's a transgressor, and James 2.9, then the good news of the fine being paid by Jesus is no longer foolishness. It's no longer offensive to him. It'll be what Romans 1.16 says, the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Now, let's look very quickly at Romans chapter 3, verse 19, with these things that I just talked about in mind. Let's look at some of the functions of God's law for man. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says... It says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So we see one function of God's law is to stop the mouth, or in other words, to shut people up. To stop sinners from justifying themselves, saying, there's plenty of people worse than me, I'm not that bad of a person. No, the law shuts the mouth of self-justification and leaves the entire world, not just the Jews, 
but the whole world guilty before God. Amen. And in verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So God's law tells us what sin is. 1 John 3, chapter 4 says, Sin is transgression of the law. Romans 7, verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No. I had not known sin, but by the law, Paul says. I didn't know what sin was until the law told me what it was. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see, God's law acts as a schoolmaster that brings us to Jesus, that we might be justified through faith in his blood. The law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless. Amen? It doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of a holy God. You see, the tragedy of modern-day, Western-style, American-style evangelism is because somewhere around the turn of the century, it forsook the law and its capacity to convert souls, to drive sinners to Christ. Instead, it's evolved. You'll hear that word a lot. Oh, well, we've evolved to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. You know, you hear me berate the uh, purpose-driven church and all that. The theory behind it makes sense to the natural man, but it's not biblical. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to preach on hell and sin. We want to preach on God's love and let the love of God draw people to the throne of grace and of mercy. You know, this sounds good, but it is not biblical. Not at all. The issue that modern evangelism chose to attract sinners was the issue of life enhancement. One term that just gets under my skin is these life coaches that are popping up all over the place. I'm not even going to go down that road right now. All right. The gospel of Jesus Christ by the Western and American churches in particular has degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace and joy and love and fulfillment and everlasting happiness instead of come to the throne of grace and mercy where you can obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Let me illustrate this. Let me show you an example of how unscriptural by nature 
this popular modern day teaching of this purpose driven grace church stuff is. Listen very carefully to the example I'm going to give. It's a little lengthy, but you'll you'll understand it completely by the time we get done. All right. This is the essence of what I'm trying to say. Let's say there are two men seated on an airplane. The first one's given a parachute and told to put it on because it's going to improve his flight beyond ways he could even imagine. He's a little skeptical at first. He can't see how wearing a parachute on a perfectly good airplane could possibly improve his flight. But after a while of hearing the hearing the you know the stewardesses talk about this and and he watches the video and he's reading a little pamphlet and he says, "Well, I'm going to see if what they're saying is true. I'm going to go ahead and put this parachute on to see if it really does improve my flight." And as soon as he puts it on, he notices it's a little heavy. The weight of it on his shoulders, you know, is kind of uncomfortable. And he finds that he's having difficulties sitting upright. But he consoles himself, you know, with the fact that he was told that by wearing this, it would improve the quality of his flight. So he decides to give the thing a little time and see what happens. As he is waiting, he looks around and he notices some of the passengers are pointing at him and laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute on a perfectly good airplane. And he begins to be embarrassed and actually humiliated a little bit. So they continue to point and laugh at him. He, he just can't stand it any longer. He takes it off and slings it under his seat, throws it under the floor, the seat in front of him. You see, disillusionment and bitterness began to fill his heart. Because as far as he was concerned, he had been told an outright lie. The second man is also given a parachute, but he's told something different. He's told to put it on because at any moment, he could be jumping from the 25,000 foot altitude that the plane's flying at. And that he won't know when it's going to happen. He just knows it will happen. So he gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't care about the weight on his shoulders, nor about the fact that he can't sit upright in his seat. His mind is consumed with the thought of what's going to happen to him if he jumps out of the plane without a parachute. Because the law of gravity would quickly take over. Now let's, for just a moment, let's analyze the motive and the result of each one of these men's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was because of the promise it would improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated and embarrassed by the passengers. He was disillusioned and somewhat angry that those who gave him the parachute, and as far as he's concerned, lied to him. So now... He makes the decision, it's going to be a long time before anyone can ever get him to put one of those things on his back again. The second man puts his parachute on for the only reason was to be ready to escape when it's time for him to jump out of the plane. Because of his knowledge that if he jumps without a parachute, 
the law of gravity will take over. But this parachute he's wearing, he knows will save him from the ultimate death experience. So that knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mocking of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave him, gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. They felt enough compassion for him to give him the parachute, warning him of something that's going to come that he's going to need. A situation he will need that parachute. Now let me rephrase that in the modern gospel evangelism taking place today. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love and joy and peace and fulfillment and everlasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight or your life here on this earth. So the sinner responds, hey, who doesn't want that? I'll try it out. I'll experiment with it. We'll see what happens. And so he puts on the Savior to see if the claims made are true, if receiving Jesus as your Savior will definitely improve the quality of your life on this earth. And what does he get? Exactly what the Bible said. Exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said he'd be promised temptation, tribulation, and persecution in this life. The other passengers mock him. People that he knew and grew up with, his friends and those he hangs around with, they all begin to mock him. So what does he do? He takes off the parachute. He takes off his Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to show anybody that he had made a decision for Christ anymore. He's offended for the word's sake, according to Mark chapter 4, verse 17. He's disillusioned and embittered, angry, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and everlasting happiness. And none of those things is what he got. All he got was trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed now towards them who told him all of this good news was going to happen to him. And as Jesus said, the latter end becomes worse than the first. Initially, he may have received salvation. He may have received deliverance from the sin that was besetting him. That demon was cast out. But there was never anything substantial to take its place. He was never filled with the Holy Spirit. He was just told the promises. And at first, he feels good about himself. And naturally, when something makes you feel good, you want to go and share it. And that's where he begins to be berated and humiliated by his friends and co-workers and to the point where he doesn't want to tell anybody anymore he made that decision. And he continues in his sin, pushing Jesus aside, saying, just leave me alone. That's sad. Folks, instead of preaching that Jesus improves this flight, this life that we live, 
We should be warning the passengers they're going to have to jump out of this life, out of this plane, at some point during the flight when they least expect it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. When a sinner understands the horrific consequences, the cost of breaking God's law, then he will gladly cling to the Savior just so he can escape the wrath to come. And if we are true and faithful witnesses, that's what we should be preaching. That there is a wrath coming. That God commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 Why? Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge in righteousness. That's verse 31, the very next verse. You see, our promise is not one of happiness, but of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is. It doesn't matter how much he's enjoying the pleasures of his sin for a season. Hebrews 11.25 Without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish on the day of wrath. And Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4 says, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Peace and joy are the fruits of salvation, but it's not right to use these fruits as the draw card for salvation. If you continue to do that, sinners will respond purely out of selfish motives and lack any type of repentance. Now, can you remember why the second passenger had such joy and peace in his heart? It was because he knew that parachute was going to save him from sure death. As a believer, Paul says that we have joy and peace in believing. Romans 5.13 He says, because I know that the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver me from the wrath that is to come. Thinking about that, let's look at the incident on board the plane in our example. Let's say we have a brand new stewardess. This is her first flight. And she wants to do a really good job. And she's carrying a tray of boiling hot coffee. And as she's walking down the aisle, she trips over someone's foot and spills that boiling hot coffee all over the lap of the second passenger. Now, what's his reaction to that boiling water or boiling coffee? Does he go, ah, man, that hurt. Mmm, man. I mean, he feels the pain. Does he then get up, take that parachute off, sling it off from his shoulders, throw it on the floor, and say, this stupid parachute burned me with coffee like that? No. No, he doesn't do that. Why should he? He didn't put the parachute on to improve the quality of his flight. He put the parachute on to save him from what's coming. If anything, that hot coffee just makes him grab that parachute tighter, wishing that he could go ahead and jump. Amen? 
Now, if you and I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the right motive, which is to flee from the wrath to come, then when tribulation strikes, when problems arise, when our flight in this life gets bumpy, we don't get angry at God. We don't lose our joy and our peace. Why would we lose it? We didn't come for a less bumpy ride. That may be a fruit of the Spirit. That may be something we receive, but we're not promised it. Jesus promised the exact opposite. He said trials and tribulations will come because of the Word's sake. He didn't lie. You heard me say before that if you think when you receive Jesus as your Savior, man, life is going to become smooth after that. You got another thing coming. You got a rude awakening coming. Because you just defected from the army of Satan and joined the army of God. And all the things Satan was putting in front of you to keep you enticed, to keep you going along following him, he's not going to give it to a member of the uh, camp of the enemy. Suddenly you're going to lose your job. You're going to, you know, all these other things that you've been focused on in the world is beginning to take place. Why? Because you left Satan's camp. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But if you want to operate in the world, you're operating according to Satan's laws. You need to switch camps. You need to shift gears. You need to put on Jesus and seek him. He'll provide for you. He'll take care of everything you need. Amen. Glory to God. But there are multitudes today of professing Christians who lose their joy and peace every single day. Just when the flight gets a little bumpy. Why? Because they are the product of this man-centered, purpose-driven gospel. That's right. That's what I said. They came to Christ lacking any type of repentance without which you cannot be saved. Now, I know that's a major generalization, and there are what I will call exceptions to the rule. Some people truly do get born again. And I'm not saying, I'm not standing here judging any man. If he comes up and wants to be born again, amen, it is between him and God. I am just the messenger, so to speak. You know, for many years I suffered from the disease My my initial calling, my major calling is as an evangelist. I love to give invitations and see people receive Christ as Savior. I so wanted sinners to respond to the gospel when I preached that I unwittingly preached man-centered messages for many years when I first began. Oh, Jesus was in the message. But I also preached about all the benefits you'd receive. Just like a lot of the the prosperity gospels and the grace gospel preachers and all them preach now about the love of God. And God will give you all these good things. And, you know, the essence of this preaching is 
you will never find true peace without Jesus Christ. Because you've got this God-shaped vacuum on the inside of your heart that only God can fill. You know, I'd preach Christ crucified. I'd preach repentance. The truth is, as I've come to realize, that a sinner would respond to the altar giving his heart to Jesus, and I knew there was probably an 80% chance he was going to backslide. And I'm growing tired of backsliders. I don't want to create backsliders. I want to create men and women who are turned on to God at all costs. You know, we hear in the news persecuted Christians overseas who are told, denounce Christ or die. And they choose death rather than denounce Christ. And I wonder, out of all these megachurches, you know, 10, 20,000 people attending these megachurches on a weekly basis, If ISIS, these terrorists, were to encircle that building and one by one pull people up, say, we'll let you go if you denounce Christianity. Out of the 20,000 in the building, I wonder exactly how many would rather face beheading rather than give up Christ. I have a feeling not very many people I mean, if you had 2,000 out of 20,000, that's 10% choosing Christ. And 2,000 people dying would be a terrible thing. But what does it say about the other 18,000 who said, well, I just said that so I could get out of the building? They compromised. And you can't compromise the gospel. You know, you would not have to go very far to get over in the other ditch and start preaching condemnation. I am not preaching condemnation. I don't believe in preaching condemnation. I mean, you could get to the point where you're going to interrogate every person that comes up to make a decision for salvation. You're going to you're going to interrogate them like a cop or or like a Nazi Gestapo agent or something. You want to make sure they really mean it. Amen. You know, the guy comes up, says, what do you want? He goes, I'm here to be a Christian. I, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. Really? Yeah. Do you really mean it? Yeah. Do you really, really, really mean it? Yeah, I, I think so. All right, I'll pray with you. You better mean it. You better mean it. Okay, okay, I'll, I, I mean it. All right, repeat this prayer after me. Hey, man, I'm telling you, you better mean it. Oh, I, I, I mean it. Say, oh God, I'm a sinner. Oh, uh, uh, oh God, I'm a sinner. Then you think, man, why isn't he crying yet? Why isn't he shaking in his boots? Why is he crying out to God? He's just repeating words. You see, there's no outward evidence. This guy is inwardly sorry for his sin. Now, if you could see his motive for coming forward, you might see he is 100% sincere. 100%. He really believes what he heard. He really means his decision with all of his heart. 
He sincerely wants to give this Jesus thing a try to see if he can get a buzz on. I mean, he tries sex, drugs, materialism, alcohol. I'll give this Christian thing a try and see if it's as good as what all these Christians are telling me. You know, this peace, joy, love stuff. I want to see how that is. You see, if that's what he was being preached, if that's the message, he wasn't fleeing from the wrath to come because nobody told him there was wrath to come. There was this big gaping hole in the message that was preached. He wasn't broken in contrition because the poor guy didn't know what sin was. He didn't know he was a sinner. He just knew he was lacking peace, joy, love, and everlasting happiness. And that's what he's seeking, not salvation. Remember what we said in Romans 7, 7? Paul said, I didn't know what sin was, but by the law. How can a man repent if he doesn't know what sin is? Any so-called repentance would merely be what I've come to call horizontal repentance. He's coming because he's been lied to by men. He's lied to men. He's been lied to by men. He's stolen from men. He's had men steal from him. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he broke all of the Ten Commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He lived a lie stole his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, committed murder, dishonored his parents, thus dishonoring God. He didn't say, I've sinned against men. I'm so sorry. No. He's, in praying to God, he said, I've sinned against you, and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, in Psalms 51.4. When Joseph was tempted sexually, he said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Genesis 39. In Luke 15, the prodigal son said, I've sinned against heaven. Paul preached repentance towards God in Acts 20. The Bible says, Godly sorrow works repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10. And when a man doesn't understand that it's his sin... And it's primarily vertical against God. When he doesn't understand that, he will merely come and exercise this superficial, experimental, horizontal repentance. And then, just like Jesus taught, when trials and tribulations and persecutions come for the word's sake, he'll fall away. There was a man named A.B. Earl, who was a famous evangelist in the last century, who had 150,000 converts to substantiate his claims. Now, Satan doesn't want you to hear this, so listen very closely. A.B. Earl said, quote, I have found by my long experience that the severest threatenings of the law of God have a prominent place in leading men to Christ. And they must see themselves lost before they cry out for mercy, for they cannot escape danger until they see it. Unquote. You see, if you try to save a man from drowning 
when he doesn't believe he's drowning, he's not going to be too happy with you. I mean, you see him swimming out in the lake or a river, you think, oh, I think he's drowning. Yes, I believe he is drowning. And you dive in, grab him, pull him around the shoulders, and you swim back to shore, and you're not telling him anything. When he finally gets on solid ground, he is not going to be a very happy camper. He won't want to be saved unless he sees he's in danger and starts calling out. Nobody will want to escape danger until they see it. You see, if you came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Bob, and I said, yeah. He said, I got this cure here for Zinman's disease. A what? Yeah, I sold my house to raise the money to get this cure for you. Here, I'm going to give it to you as a free gift. I'd say, what? what? To cure what? Zinman's disease? What, what is that? You sold your house to raise the money to get this thing? And you're giving it to me as a free gift? Well, okay. Uh, thanks, I guess. Bye. And then I think to myself, this guy's a nut. I mean, that's probably how I'd react if you sold your house to raise money to get a cure for a disease that I'd never heard of, didn't know I had, and you're giving it to me as a free gift? I think you're a little strange. Maybe a few, few acorns loose upstairs, if you know what I mean. But if you came up to me and said, you know, Brother Bob, I'm a doctor, and I see you've got Zimmons disease, and I can see the ten clear symptoms all over your flesh. And if you don't do something, you're going to be dead in two weeks. And I, I know, because I studied this disease, and even though you may not see it, I see it. And I said, oh, man, what, what, what should I do? And he said, don't worry, there is a cure to the Zimmons disease. I sold my house to raise the money to get you this cure. I'm going to give it to you as a free gift. I, I don't want to lose you. So here, just take this. Well, I don't, you know, something like that. You're a doctor and you've seen this disease and I've been feeling a little funny anyway. And now you told me what it was and I realized just how in trouble I am. I'm not going to despise your gift. I'm going to appreciate it. And I'm going to appropriate it. I'm going to grab that bottle out of your hand and drink it right there. Amen. But see, what's happened in the U.S., in the Western world, is that we've preached about the cure without first convincing anyone of the disease. We've preached this gospel of grace without first convincing men of the law that they have transgressed the law. Consequently, almost everyone I try and witness to has been born again sometimes six, seven times. Have you received Jesus as you say? Oh, yes, yes. I, I did that when I was seven and again at 11 and again at 17 and uh, 23 or 24, somewhere in that area, and, and at 32. You know, right there, this guy is probably not a Christian, not a real Christian. He may think he's a Christian, and again, I'm not standing in judgment of anyone. There is nothing to say that at some point in time, he really did have a true repentance of his sin. But the way he's talking and the examples he's giving and the answers he's providing, you can tell he's very superficial. 
and what he's saying. See, he was seeking a feel-good Jesus. I want Jesus in my life so I can feel good. Not the true repentance of sin. Because when you feel so bad about what you've done, that you know you're going to be going to hell. You know there's no alternative but for a just and righteous God to throw you into hell. But then you find out there's a cure. Oh, glory to God. You're handed the parachute on your flight of life. Then you know you're saved. Or you are dealing with a Christian who may have backslid and now he's truly repentant. Amen. You see, the guy who's looking for this feeling, this feeling of peace, he's not interested in hearing about his sin. He's not interested in hearing what his sin is going to cost him. He could be a fornicator or a blasphemer, but if he thinks he's saved because he's been, quote-unquote, born again at one of these grace preaching meetings, what's happening? He's using the grace of our God for an occasion of the flesh. He doesn't esteem the sacrifice that was made for him. For him, it's not a bad thing to trample on the blood of Christ. Why? Because he's never been convinced of the disease that he has, so therefore he doesn't appreciate the cure. Biblical evangelism, folks, is always, 100% of the time, without exception, law to the proud, grace to the humble. Never, when you're studying the Bible, never will you see Jesus giving the gospel, giving the good news, talking about the cross, the grace of our God, to anyone who's proud or arrogant or a self-righteous person. Not at all. Not one time. It's not recorded in the Bible. What is recorded in the Bible? With the law, he breaks the hard heart. And then with the gospel, he heals the now broken heart. That's why in Luke chapter 4, it says, He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Amen. With the law, he breaks the hard hearts. And with the good news, he heals the now broken heart. Why? Because he always did those things that pleased the Father. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is of a proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. Jesus told us for whom the gospel is actually for. He, see, he, he says right here in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, now, these are all spiritual statements. Amen. 
the poor in spirit. The brokenhearted are the contrite ones, as outlined in Isaiah 57 15. The captives are those of whom Satan has taken captive to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. The blind are those of whom the God of this world has blinded, lest the light of the gospel should shine on them, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Jesus said only the sick need a physician, Mark 2.17. And only those who are convinced of the disease they have will appreciate and appropriate the cure at any cost. So I want to look briefly now. That was the foundation. <laughs> oh, glory to God. We're almost out of time. And I just finished the foundation. That's why I say this will be a couple weeks in this series. But we're going to look briefly now at a couple of examples of the law and how you use it to preach to the proud and preach grace to the humble. Amen. Luke chapter 10 verse 24. Luke 10, verse 24. Now, sometimes I like preaching just like the Bible does. And I'll give scripture references twice. Why twice, Brother Bob? Well, it's because I'm preaching to men. I know that. And it's documented biblical evidence that men need to be preached to twice. They need to be told things twice. See, this can be backed up biblically. When God speaks to men in the Bible, he always calls them twice. Abraham, Abraham, or Saul, Saul, or Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. Because men, according to the Bible, need to be told things twice. But women, only once. I don't know how many times I've sat in a pew and a preacher said, uh, turn to Luke 25, and I'll ask my wife, I'll say, what did he say? Luke 25, 10, 25. Remember, folks, especially the men, your wife is your helpmate in this life. That's why God created women, because men couldn't handle things on their own. I know I lose things all the time, but it'll be right in front of me. I'll ask my wife, where's the keys or... Where's this at? Or where's the remote? I said, right in front of you. And she'll come over and, yeah, yeah, there it was, right in front of me. I don't know how many times I've opened up the cupboard and said, where's the bowls? Or where's this plate? And she says, it's right here. And she'll reach around some dish that was blocking my vision. If I'd have just looked a little harder, it would have been right there. I could have found it on my own, but it's like the running joke in my family that I can't find anything, even if it's right in front of me. Silence is deafening from the men listening to me right now. Glory to God. But I can hear the women yelling, Yes, amen. Preach it. <laughs> amen. All right. Where would man be without women in their life? Probably still in the Garden of Eden. See, Eve found the tree. Adam didn't even know what was going on. In fact, if you look at the creation of women... To create woman, the Bible says God put man into a deep sleep. Not one scripture says he ever came out of it. Amen? All right. Did you find Luke 10.25 yet? Glory to God. Here we see a lawyer, a scribe, trained in the law of God, stand up and tempt Jesus. 
This is not a lawyer like we would use in our modern society today. He's not an attorney. He is a professing expert on God's law. And he stands up and says to Jesus, Teacher, how can I get everlasting life? Now, what did Jesus do? He gave him the law. He didn't say, just believe in me and everything will be all right. No, he didn't do that. He gave him the law. Why? Because you could tell he was proud, arrogant, and self-righteous. He believed he knew enough that he could trip up the Son of God. Here we have a professing expert on God's law tempting the Son of God with his own law. And basically what he's saying is, what do you think we've got to do to get everlasting life? So Jesus gives him the law. and says, what's written in the law? What is your interpretation of it? How do you read it? He says, ah, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just says, do this and you shall live. But then the scripture says, he, willing to justify himself, and it's inferred there, in front of all the people, says to Jesus, well then, who is my neighbor? The Living Bible actually brings, them all, brings this out more clearly than the King James Version. Uh, it says, the man wanted to justify his lack of love for some kinds of people. So he asked Jesus, which neighbors? See, he didn't mind the Jews so much, but he really, really didn't like the Samaritans at all. So Jesus used the Samaritan and what we call the good Samaritan to show what a neighbor was. In loving his neighbor as much as he loved himself, he merely obeyed the basic requirements of God's law. And the effect of the essence of the law, the spirituality of the law, of what the law demands in truth, was that the man's mouth was stopped. Amen? You see, he didn't love his neighbor to that degree. The law was given to stop every mouth and leave the whole world guilty before God. Just like we read in Luke 18, well, Luke 18, verse 18. I'm sorry, we didn't read that one yet. Luke 18, verse 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. says, how can I get everlasting life? Now, how would most of us react? <laughs> Preacher, listen to me. How would you react if someone came running up to you and said, Preacher, how can I get everlasting life? I would be willing to say that most of us will say, quick. Pray this prayer with me before you change your mind. Amen. What did Jesus do when someone did that to him? He pointed him back to the law. He gave him five horizontal commandments, commandments dealing with his fellow man. And when he said, oh, I've kept all those from my youth. Jesus said, all right, there's one thing you lack. And he went back to the essence of the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. He showed this man who said, Oh, I've kept all these ones with dealing with my fellow man. I've kept all them. 
And Jesus said, all right, then you'd still got to do this one. He showed the man that his God was his money. His God was his money. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money, mammon. Amen. You minister the law to the proud, the law to the proud, the self-righteous, those who are trying to justify themselves. We see grace given to the humble. In the case of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews. He was a major teacher in Israel. Therefore, he was thoroughly versed. He understood God's law 100%. He knew Nobody could live up to that standard. Amen. But he was humble in his heart because he came to Jesus and acknowledged Jesus' deity as the Son of God. A leader in Israel told Jesus, we know. He's talking about the leaders in Israel. We know you came from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus didn't send him back to the law. He recognized a seeker of truth who had humbled his heart, who had a knowledge of sin by the law, the good news of the fine that needed to be paid. He said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That was not foolishness to Nicodemus. It was... The power of God unto salvation, as we read in Romans. Similarly, in the case of Nathaniel, when Jesus was calling the disciples, you know, getting his disciples, and they came to Nathaniel and said, Hey, we found him, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, Nathaniel was a true Israelite, brought up under the law indeed. In other words, he did the law, not just in word, he did it in deed. And Scripture says there was in him no guile, there was no deceit in his heart. Obviously, the law was a schoolmaster to bring this godly Jew to Christ. Similarly, with the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were devout Jews, godly Jews, who therefore ate, drank, slept God's law, studied God's law, talked about God's law. They knew God's law. Amen. Matthew Henry, a biblical commentator, said the reason they were gathered together on the day of Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of God's law on Mount Sinai. So when Peter stood up to preach to these godly Jews who knew the law, he did not preach wrath. They knew about the wrath of God that was coming. The law works wrath. They knew that. So he didn't preach righteousness or judgment to them. No, he told them about the good news that the fine had been paid for. And this pricked their hearts. And they cried out, men and brethren, what are we going to do? We killed the Messiah. What are we going to do? The law was a schoolmaster. It brought them to Christ that they might be justified by faith in his blood. Amen. And 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 8 says, We know that the law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. God's law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. 
Well, through our study, what was the law designed to do? Amen? The following verse tells us, The law was not made for a righteous man, but for sinners. It even lists the sinners, homosexuals and fornicators. If you want to bring a homosexual to Jesus Christ and get them saved, don't get into an argument with him over his perversion. He's ready for you with boxing gloves on. He is prepared for that fight. No, give him the Ten Commandments. You see, the law was made for homosexuals. Show him he's damned despite being a homosexual. Even if he wasn't a homosexual, he's still going to go to hell. He'd go to hell if he was straight, just like every other straight person will. Show him he's damned despite that. For all, every man and woman ever born on the face of this planet, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? Homosexuals no less righteous than you before you accepted Christ. You could have lived in a glass bubble your entire life and still go to hell just because you were born into sin. Amen? So don't get all upset with the homosexuals for being homosexual. Yes, what's going on in our national politics is an abomination to God. But he loves the homosexuals too. He died for the homosexuals too. It's the sin that he hates. He loves the murderers, the rapists, the bank robbers, the drug dealers, the dope heads. Jesus died for all of them. It's the sin that he hates. And he hates it because it's going to separate you or them from him forever. Amen? So if you want to bring a Jew to Christ... Put the law upon him. Let him prepare his heart for grace, just like it happened on the day of Pentecost. If you want to bring a Muslim to Christ, give him the law of Moses. Don't argue with him about the Quran. Oh, they're experts at the Quran. They know what the Quran says. They know it better than you. Give him the law of Moses. They accept Moses as a prophet. Give them the law of Moses and strip them of their self-righteousness. And then... Bring him to the foot of the blood-stained cross. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, Scripture says, for converting the soul. Think about the woman in John 8. The woman caught in the very act of adultery. Violation of the seventh commandment. The law called for her blood in Leviticus 20.10. They brought her to Jesus said, what are you going to do? The law says she deserves to die. What do you say? She was, she was stuck. She was in between, in between what we call a rock and a hard place. She had no avenue left but to fling herself at the feet of the Son of God and beg for mercy. And that's what the function of God's law is. She, when Jesus did what he did and everyone left, and then he asked the woman, says, is there anyone here to accuse you of anything? She says, none, Lord. And he said, I'm not going to accuse you either then. Just go and sin no more. In other words, I stand before you. And she received mercy. Amen. Mega churches today say, you can't condone sinners. Saints, they're already condemned. John 3 verse 18 says, he that believes not is condemned already. 
All the law does is show him himself in his true state. Amen? You might recognize this. If you dust your table in the living room, dust it clean, looks perfect, all done, and you draw back the curtains, let the sunlight in, what's the first thing you see on the table? Dust. Right where you just got done cleaning. There's still dust. You look in the air, you see little dust particles in the air. Did the light create the dust? No. The light exposed the dust. When you and I take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon the sinner's heart, all that happens is he sees himself according to the light, according to the truth. Proverbs 6.23 says, The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. That's why Paul said, By the law is the knowledge of sin. That's why I said, By the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. In other words, the law showed him his sin in its true light. Now, we're almost out of time. Normally at this stage of teaching, I go through the Ten Commandments one by one. What I'll do is share with you how I think we can witness more perfectly to someone that would be more beneficial. Uh, I'm a strong believer in following the examples of Jesus. Never ever would I approach someone and say, Jesus loves you. Uh, some stranger on the street is totally unbiblical. You hear that, oh, that's how, you know, oh, Jesus loves you. Oh, Jesus loves you. But there's no precedent for that in Scripture. Nowhere does it say that's what we're supposed to say. Just like I wouldn't go up to someone and say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Why? Because if I want to wake you up from a deep sleep, I don't go and shine a bright flashlight in your eyes. A lot of people get offended at that. Amen? You turn the light dimmer on gently, and just a couple nudges at first. Why? Because the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God Neither can he know them. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually understood. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The precedent in Scripture is given in John 4 for personal witness. You can see Jesus doing this with the woman at the well. He started in the natural realm, swung off into the spiritual, brought conviction using the seventh commandment, and then revealed himself as the Messiah. You've heard me talk about witnessing to cashiers at grocery stores when they say, you know, how are you doing today in that sweet, drippy voice they're supposed to use? And you've heard me say, and my reply is, I'm blessed, saved, going to heaven. How about you? Bang, right there, right across the jaw. I mean, you get, if you get a born-again believer as a cashier, they'll look up, their eyes all shine and say, me too. And then you can carry on a Christian conversation while checking out for the benefit of the others in line. Glory to God. But if they look up you with that deer in a headlight look and say, huh, what? You know you got a live one online. Amen. And you can witness to them. Glory to God. If meeting with someone, you know, you talk about the weather or talk about sports, let them feel a little bit of sanity. Let them start to get comfortable with you. Get to know them a little bit. Maybe joke here or there. Then swing from the natural to the spiritual. I like using tracks. Tracks are the greatest witnessing tool, amen? And get some unusual ones, not the standard one, God died for you, or, you know, get something that draws their attention to it. I say one, uh, it's 
called an optical illusion track. You've probably seen them, you know, the two circles, which one looks bigger, but they're both actually the same size. Amen. Uh, and you say it's a gospel track. Here, the instructions on her back actually instructions on how to get saved. So you can keep that. And so I'm like, oh, cool, thanks. You know, i got to show this to my friends. Then you say, i got another gift for you. And what's that? The Ten Commandments. What? Ten Commandments? What are you talking about? So, well, you know, Ten Commandments pretty much spells out how you get saved. Wait a minute, I thought you said you get saved by Jesus. Well, you know, do you keep the Ten Commandments? Well, I do the best I can. Okay, so basically then you you admit you're a sinner going to hell. Well, I I, I wouldn't say that. I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as some people. I, I try and do good. Well, let's see which commandments you keep. Let's go through them. Have you ever told a lie? Well, uh, yeah, one or two little white lies. What? Well, what does that make you? Well, a sinner? Well, no, no, not really. I, I mean, I'm not a liar. Well, how many lies then do you have to tell to be a liar? You hit 10 and a bell rings and they stamp your file as liar? I don't know. You know have, have you ever stolen anything? No. Oh, come on. You just told me you're a liar. Have you ever steal anything even if it's small? Well, yeah, maybe. Well, what does that make you then? Well, this time he sees he's in a corner. A thief and he lowers his voice and turns his eyes towards the ground. And then, you know, you say, well, Jesus said if you look at a woman of lust after her, you committed adultery with her in your heart. You ever done that? Well, yeah, plenty of times. Then by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart, and you're going to have to face God on Judgment Day for these things. And I've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. There's another seven with their guns pointed right at you. Have you ever cussed or used God's name in vain? Yeah, but I'm trying to stop. Well, you know what then? You are going to hell unless you accept Jesus and the price he paid for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's do that right now. Can you do that? And usually they'll say yes. And that's what I want to offer you right now. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, this is your day and hour to do so. Just pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I see when held up to the law that I am a sinner. I receive the cure for that sin, which is salvation through you. I thank you, Father, for honoring this prayer in Jesus' name that I can say I am forgiven and have been born again into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you pray that prayer, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org. Let us know. We're all out of time. we got a lot more to go into. We'll cover it again next time. Till next time, it's Brother Bob reminding you, God loves you, we love you, and greater seems in you than he is in this world. Be blessed in all you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.